Welcome to the StoryGrid Writer's Room Podcast with Valerie Francis and Leslie Watts. This show is all about getting writers writing. There's a story inside of you that's trying to get out, and even though you love this stuff, sometimes it feels like you're banging your head against the wall. Well, the StoryGrid method is like a decoder ring, and it will help you crack any story you can dream up. The hardest part is knowing where to start, but that's what we're here for. We've been where you are now, and we can help. Here on the show, we'll give you a practical approach to the StoryGrid method so that you can put it to work. If you want to crack the story code, roll up your sleeves, and let's get started. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 9 of the StoryGrid Writer's Room Podcast. My name is Valerie Francis. I'm a certified StoryGrid editor. I'm also a writer, and I specialize in stories by, for, and about women. And I'm Leslie Watts. I'm a StoryGrid certified editor, and I help fiction and nonfiction writers craft epic stories that matter. Now, this season, we are focusing on scenes, because if you can write a scene that works, you can write a story that works. Today, Leslie, we're going to look at a scene from The Secret Life of Bees, which was published in 2002, and it's written by Sue Monk Kidd. Now, the scene that I chose is from Chapter 9. It's the third section in Chapter 9, and it begins with, if the heat goes over 104 degrees in South Carolina, you have to go to bed. I think this is a global worldview story, um, and I'm leaning toward Revelation, because Lily discovers that her mother didn't abandon her after all. And that then leads to a chain of events. I'm willing to be argued with. So if someone has read The Secret Life of Bees and doesn't see it as a revelation story, um, you're not wrong. All right, let me go over the uh, beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff just to orient you to the story in the beginning hook. When Lily Owens is severely punished abused by her father T-Ray for something that she did not do, Lily decides to run away from home to find out about her mother Deborah, who died when Lily was four years old. T-Ray had told her that her mother had left them, and when she'd returned for her things, Lily shot and killed her. Lily refuses to believe that. She, She breaks their housekeeper, Rosaline, out of prison, and the two of them hitchhike to Tiburon, South Carolina. In the middle build. Lily and Rosaline are taken in by August Boatwright and her sisters who make Black Madonna honey and decide to stay with them until they can figure out their next move. When Lily discovers that the Boatwright sisters knew her mother, she presses August for details and discovers that Deborah did indeed leave Lily and T-Ray, but rather than abandoning her daughter, she returned for Lily intending to take her back to Tiburon. In the ending payoff, T-Ray discovers Lily's whereabouts and shows up at the Boatwright house intending to take Lily back to their farm in Sylvan, South Carolina. But when T-Ray is physically and verbally abusive to her, August steps in and says that Lily is welcome to stay with them in Tiburon. Lily decides to stay in Tiburon, but demands that T-Ray tell her the truth about her mother's death. He confirms that she did kill her mother, but that it was an accident. So this is not a... A lighthearted little 
feel-good kind of story. It's pretty heavy. Um, Leslie, let's look at the scene type first. Do you want to take a crack at the editor's scene type? Yes. Okay, so this is a spinal scene. It's the middle build one turning point. It's pretty important. Uh, in terms of the external story, this is all about how the protagonist or the luminary agent is becoming a target of the antagonist, right? And here we see that, uh, that she made a phone call prior to the scene, she made a phone call and that's re to T-Ray and that is really weighing on her. So we have that in terms of the external story that's happening. Now, in terms of the heroic journey, this is a scene about how the protagonist luminary agent is coming to understand the forces of antagonism and that they must be reckoned with. So they had an idea, oh, I'll just run away from home with my stand-in mom and things will be cool. Well, no, things will not be cool. The fix it and forget it mission that they believed in when they entered the extraordinary world is merely an illusion. So this scene, I think, does a nice job of filling the bill here in The Secret Life of Bees. For the writer's type, now this, of course, is where we bring our creativity to it and we get to name the scene. So we both came up with something that's in the same ballpark, but totally different titles. Just, let's just, you, you tell us what you came up with first. Okay, so I'm saying allowing the truth or an insight to bubble up. And I'm calling it a light bulb scene. <laughs> shows the difference in you and I, Leslie. You called it a, in Harry Potter, it was a pursuit scene and I just called it a chase scene. I'd like to plain language everything. It's my background in communications bubbling up. The reason I'm calling it a light bulb scene is because Lily gets a vital piece of information that allows her to, to piece together a bunch of puzzle pieces that she had before. Because remember, the whole point of this book is Lily wanting to find out about her mother. She doesn't remember her mother or just, you know, a few little snatches of memory. She wants to find someone other than her father who knew her mother so that she can find out what kind of woman her mother was. Was she actually abandoned? Did she kill her mother? I mean, holy Hannah, right? These are big, heavy questions. Even though she's been in the pink house with the Boatwright sisters for a while, for the, the whole of Middle Build 1, in fact, roughly 25% of the book, maybe even a bit more. She doesn't realize that they knew her mother. In this scene, this is when May says, oh yeah, I knew Deborah uh, Fontenelle. Of course I did. This is huge. Like the, uh, the light bulb comes on for Lily. So that's why I'm calling it a light bulb scene. So what scene does this, uh, sorry, what does the scene type accomplish within the context of the novel as a whole? Well, as the turning point of middle build one, this is where the plunge into chaos begins. And this is where, in my opinion, the story really starts to move again, because we had a really exciting beginning hook, which is... Uh, Rosaline getting arrested and thrown into prison and beaten up and in the hospital and Lily breaking her out and 
and then middle build one, not much happens internally or externally for quite a few pages. And then in this scene, aha, the story kicks in again because we know that Lily is in search of her mother. How many people are in the scene? Leslie? Okay, so we've got two on stage, obviously. We've got Lily and we've got May. But the prior actions of Deborah and T. Ray are really influencing Lily's insights here, which is really interesting to me because I also think about it in terms of nonfiction. And it's about how, you know, insight or revelation is always about something triggers a way of looking at the past or the information we already have in a new way. It's not just a new piece of information. It reorders reality. And so the number of people in the scene is important. And it also highlights why we list the offstage characters on our spreadsheet. They might not be on the page or in that room where the action is taking place, but they have an influence over what's taking place. Uh, where does the scene take place? Now, we've said this before, Leslie, and the more of these scene studies that we do, the more, the more the impact of where the scene takes place hits me. The location is not arbitrary. So if you have a scene that doesn't seem to be sizzling, even though it ticks all the boxes that it's supposed to take in terms of craft, check where you're setting it. If you ch change it to another location, it could suddenly pop. For instance, this is taking place in the kitchen of the pink house. Now, the pink house represents the extraordinary world for, Liz for um, Lily. The kitchen is like the heart of the house. That's where everyone comes to gather. Lily sleeps outside in the honey house, like a shed they, they have out and back. So she's been lying out there. It's 104 degrees. She's been lying out there, and it's too hot to sleep. So she comes into the kitchen to get a drink. She is entering. So she's in the extraordinary world of Tiburon. She goes into the cave of the pink house and then further into the cave, into the kitchen. So she's going to the inmost cave, and that's where she is when she has the insight about her mother. So when you have a global internal genre story, this is the type of stuff that you start to work into your story to communicate meaning to your reader. Whereas if this was a fantasy story, the character might be going into a literal cave and then deeper and deeper into the literal cave where the dragon is that they have to slay. Okay. Leslie, what is the power dynamic at play in this scene? Well, it's really interesting here because May has power. She's got information. She knows that Deborah Fontenelle was, uh, you know, was living there. Um, but because of her condition, Lily is kind of, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I can trust you. And she's not sure. I mean, she does pause from it. She has a real crisis about whether to ask, whether to, when she makes the connection, am I going to ask? And so she has to choose to embrace knowledge, awareness, new information, 
no matter what and no matter what the result because she doesn't know what she's going to get on the other side of it and so i think it's a really interesting power dynamic because you wouldn't normally think of someone like may as having the power the point of power you know in the scene um but she does and lily has to make herself vulnerable in order to get what she needs right because may is typically the powerless one in the scene and she doesn't operate in terms of power or powerlessness at all that's not the plane or the energy level that may is on and at any point so even though she has it in the scene she's completely unaware of it may is in may's world doing may's thing which is making a trail of graham cracker crumbs so that she can lead the roach outside without having to kill the thing. Um, what's the point of conflict and how does it relate to the character's object of desire? Well, the conflict is all within Lily here. And again, when you're dealing with a global external genre story, the conflict tends to primarily, in most of the scenes, be external because that's the global story that you're dealing with, right? Here we're dealing with a global internal story. So much of the conflict is happening within Lily. It, she's being pulled one way or the other. The whole story, am I this, am I that? Should I do go here, should I go there? Is this person telling the truth? Is that person telling the truth? And it's in a uh, first person point of view too. Lily is the one telling the story. So we're really within Lily's head. Now it's older Lily telling younger Lily's story, but you're still always within Lily's head. And of course, her object of desire is, is to find out more about her mother. And this is the first time, as I said a minute ago, that she has found someone who, who knew her mother. So, so it's a big deal here. Alrighty, now we go into the story event questions. Um, and the whole point of these story event questions is to help us fill in our spreadsheet. And the point of filling in the spreadsheet is to help us understand our story better. Is it working? Is it not working? Why is it in the, our story in the first place? Is it moving the plot along? Is it developing our characters? Leslie, do you want to take us through these questions so we can figure out our stories a bit better? Sure. So the first question is, what are the characters literally doing? That is, what are their micro on the ground actions? So Valerie, you've mentioned in the past how this is what, what the actors would be doing with their hands if they were, if we were talking about a scene in a film or TV. And so it, it really is just what's happening on the surface. So here, Lily lies in bed. She's unable to sleep because it's oppressively hot. Uh, so she's thinking. And then she goes to the kitchen for a drink where she encounters May and they have a conversation. So that's really simple. And then we look at what is the essential tactic of the character. So this is what are the the macro behaviors that they are employing that are linked to a universal human value. So here really Lily is trying to avoid thinking about her mother because thinking about her mother is reminding her of the conversation with her father and she's feeling really bad about that. And 
So we might also say she's avoiding the truth, even though she wants the truth. So this totally aligns with what you were saying, Valerie, about how all the conflict is within her. May is not withholding information. She freely gives it up. There is no conflict with another person. It's all within her and what the environment just naturally provides, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. The third question is what universal human values have changed for one or more characters in the scene and which one of those changes is most important and that we should put in the spreadsheet? Well, there are plenty of ways to describe the changes that happen here. Of course, Lily can't sleep and then she falls asleep quickly. She's hot and thirsty and then her thirst is at least quenched even if it is still really, really hot. But the obvious shift is that Lily is unaware that her mother had stayed in the honey house and then she becomes aware. So we get this scene in this scene, it's really obvious. This is the important change. It's the one we would track in the spreadsheet. But what if you have a scene where it isn't so obvious? How can you tell? We've got two really useful story grid tools for that. So first, you look at the change in the core value for the global genre. So here we're identifying the global genre as worldview revelation. So that, that value spectrum includes the negation of the negation, which is ignorance appearing as wisdom. We have ignorance, we have cognitive dissonance, which is kind of a, hmm, these two things don't go together. And then we have, of course, knowledge and wisdom. So I would say in this scene, the shift is suppressed truth to truth revealed. And it's not um, suppressed by anyone necessarily because we're not talking about T-Ray giving up the goods at the end. What we're talking about here is that Lily has a suspicion and she doesn't act on it till this moment. Okay, so the second tool for figuring out what's the most important change um, is the turning point progressive complication, which we're going to look at in a moment, but identifying what's at stake when that happens will help, will give you a strong clue to the change that really matters in the scene, which, as I said, we'll see. So the fourth question is, what is the story event that sums up all of these, the information we've gathered about the scene so far and, and that we want to put in the spreadsheet? Well, here's what I've come up with. Lily can't sleep in the oppressive heat, and to suppress thoughts about her mother, she goes to the kitchen but instead of suppressing her suspicions, she asks May if Deborah Fontenelle had ever stayed there, and May replies, yes. Okay, so questions one through three help us craft that story event that we enter into the story grid spreadsheet. And as Valerie said last week, it's your spreadsheet, unless you're submitting it to story grid publishing. And so you can put whatever you want in there, but you can see, I hope, how 
crafting the story event this way sums up what's happening, the point of conflict, and the change. So it's a really useful summary of what happens in the scene. And then, of course, the five commandments, are they show how we enact or execute that story event. So again, you can see how we use this tool to analyze a scene, like a masterwork or our own work in progress. But I hope what's coming through too is that you can use these questions to plan or outline a scene when you have an idea of what the characters need to be doing, what the main conflict is, and what needs to change to keep the story moving. All righty, let's go through the five commandments. The inciting incident. This is when Lily goes into the kitchen for a cold drink and discovers May sitting on the floor with graham crackers and marshmallows, claiming to have seen a cockroach. Progressive complications. Uh, May's past behavior causes Lily to miss the significance of May's current actions. And Lily is so hot, she is completely focused on getting a drink. Now, there's only two progressive complications here. Compare this to the scene we did last week in The Girl on the Train. I actually got tired of listing all the progressive complications. So if you're going through that scene, I guarantee you're going to find more than what I've listed. Because I, I just got to the point where I said, oh, that's fine. <laughs> they get the point. There's a million and one progressive complications in this scene. Because that's a global external genre story. It's a thriller. And that's the core event of the thriller. So you want all these external things going on that ramp up the tension. Here you have uh, uh, the, the turning point scene for Middle Build 1. It's not the core event of the story, so it's not as big a scene in the context of the novel as a whole. The action is internal for, for Lily, so we only have two, and that's plenty because you have those two things and then when you hit the turning point progressive complication, which is that May says she's luring the roaches out of the house. This is the light bulb that I talked about. This is why I'm calling it a light bulb. Because when Lily gets out of her own head for just a second and she sees what May is doing, she makes the connection with something her mother did. Her mother did this exact thing, take graham cracker crumbs and marshmallows, make a little trail to lead the cockroaches out of the house. Now that is not something that everybody does. So <laughs> we don't have cockroaches here in Newfoundland, but I wouldn't do that. I, I would might freak out, but I don't know that I would make a graham cracker crumb trail to lead the cockroaches out of the house. So it's, a different action that is, it's uniquely May, but it is different enough that it stops Lily, it takes Lily out of her own head and allows her to make the connection. Things that were there in front of her all along, because she's been in the Boatwright house for some time now, but she hasn't seen the connections with her mother. She was drawn there because her mother had um, a label from the Black Madonna Honey. So she goes to Tiburon, and she knows it's, it's Tiburon, South Carolina. So she goes to Tiburon in search of this Black Madonna Honey, hoping it might be a clue. Well, she finds the pink house where the Boatwright sisters live 
fairly quickly, they take her in because they look at her and she looks just like her mother. And August, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. August actually used to care for Deborah when she was a little girl. So August takes one look at this runaway child and knows it's Deborah Fontenelle's daughter. Doesn't know who Rosaline is, but knows that somehow she is the adult in charge of this child right now. So they're both welcome in. This is a whole area of conflict that if Sue Monk Kidd had wanted to write an external global story, she would have been tapping into all this. August and June would have really been pressing on Lily to, to fess up. Uh, local authorities would really be in the mix here a lot, but they're not, they're all, they fade away into the background because this whole story is taking place in Lily's head. So August is, and June, uh, even though June is not keen on her being there, they are letting Lily work it out. Letting her mature when she's ready. They know she's traumatized or she wouldn't have run away <laughs> if she wasn't coming from something really difficult. So they're giving her space and time and love and nurturing and caring. All the things that she needs in order to be able to handle the truth of her personal history and the truth of her mother so that she can grow and develop in a normal and healthy way. So, I mean, imagine graham cracker crumbs is what is the turning point of middle build one. Graham cracker crumbs. So the crisis then is, does Lily ask, quote unquote, crazy May, if she knew Deborah Fontenelle or not. Um, in the climax is Lily does ask May, and the resolution is May confirms that she knows Deborah and that Deborah used to live in the same honey house that Lily currently inhabits. Pretty big, pretty big stuff. All right, Leslie, let's jump into the real meat of the scene and why this is a scene worth studying. You want to go first? Sure. So for me, I think what I love about this scene is, is all the details. And I've been obsessing about details lately, in part because I'm, I'm still working, you know, putting the finishing touches on my point of view beat. And it's all about how you deliver the story to the reader, but it's really about creating an experience. And that experience is created through details and the order in which you deliver them and the word choices you use to, to share them. So I think this scene is a great model for dramatizing a, a light bulb moment or a big moment of insight. And if we look at the details, notice that Lily is trying to resist what she needs to see, even as she wants to know more about her mother. So when we resist insight, it seems as though everything and everyone in the environment is nudging or shoving us in that direction, right? So the phrase, uh, what we resist persists, comes to mind when we think about this, right? And 
So that's great, but what does it look like? How do we do that as a practical matter? Well, of course, we have the heat. And if you've never been in 104 degree heat, which is 40 degrees Celsius for our friends who use that uh, metric, um, it is oppressive. And if you don't have air conditioning, you cannot escape it. And so you can see how the environment is a kind of force of antagonism here with Lily's desire to stop thinking about her mother. Everything is pushing her in that direction. You cannot escape. So it is a physical manifestation of the forces of antagonism that are weighing Lily down, which is what we talked about some of the things that we need in this middle build one turning point. Okay, so then notice how she establishes the setting and the oppressive conditions, and then she gives us this little story about the boy with the steel plate at his head. And so we get to have our own experience of insight, right? We're chewing on this story. It's in the back of our minds as we go through what could otherwise feel like a monotonous setting. We have multiple lines of, um, of communication happening here, right? And then we get the metaphor of the elevator. In case you don't like the one with the kid with the steel plate in his head, we get loaded up as you often do in um, in stories that are set in the South and really have a you know that category of Southern literature. You have a lot of those metaphors. You have a lot of proverbs. You have a lot of little stories uh, within the story. So then we go through that, her attempts to avoid it, and the thoughts keep coming up, and she can't. So then she gives up trying to sleep, and she goes. And if you look at the, the language that she's using when she moves into the kitchen, this is exactly what you were talking about earlier, Valerie, is that she's moving into that the heart of the home and of course the heart searching her heart not her brain her brain is what her father is giving her this information that you know she's got this stuff it's her heart that's really telling her the truth and so all of these things together really work in a nice way so even though you know as i think you're going to talk about there are some challenges with the global story this is a beautiful scene and a great model for how do how does a protagonist or just a regular person generate insight you know, figure out what to do when they don't know what to do, when their regular way of dealing with the world isn't working. And so this is just, it's a beautiful scene and model for that, I think. There's so much. I have my notes here, but now my mind is, is jumping off all these points you just made. So the, the Secret Life of Bees is a really wonderful novel to study if you're curious about seeing how a theme 
permeates the story. Because when I first started to read it, the first couple of chapters, and I even said to Leslie, I have no idea what these bees are about. <laughs> I, I don't know, like I have no clue what she's talking about in the first couple of scenes. But then as you go, when she gets into the extraordinary world in the pink house with August and, and the black Madonna and uh, all the other characters who start coming in, you start to see the relevance of the bees. This is a, also a good novel to study if you're curious about image systems. There's some wonderful, the bees, obviously, the honey, um, and how they're caring for the bees and how they speak about the queen bee. So, this, so if you're curious about image systems and how it works, this is a, a good option to, to take a look at. Now, Leslie just mentioned some uh, troubles with the global structure, in my opinion, in that the beginning hooks sort of set you up for more of an action story. So when I first read the beginning hook, of course, we've got an abusive father who makes his daughter kneel on grits and he's physically abusive. He's verbally abusive. There's a lot of physical action happening. Uh, Rosaline steps in and saves her. Rosaline stands up for herself and uh, is therefore jailed and she's beaten in jail and she's so much so that they put her in the hospital. She's broken out of jail and then they run away. So you've got lots of action. You've got um, social dynamics. All of these things that are set up in the beginning hook that when you hit the middle build one, they seem to go away. <laughs> it it recedes into the background so far that I found it a bit hard to get through middle build one until this scene that we're studying today. And then I, then I was like, oh, okay, here's the story again. The story has picked back up because Lily set out to find out about her mother and aha, finally, here we are right in the middle of the book. We're back to Deborah. Uh, so it, it doesn't, I'm not suggesting that the, the, book is not worthy of reading. It absolutely is. But as you read it, just see if you had the same reaction I did. Because if you did, I mean, this is the type of thing that we're doing in the beginning hook, right? We're setting up our readers to expect a particular type of story. Then when we hit the middle build, we have to deliver that kind of story. Honestly, the only reason I kept reading it is because we had to do this episode today on the podcast. And I struggled. We were supposed to do this episode several weeks ago and I was dragging my feet on this book and Leslie very kindly said, all right, well, let's, let's shuffle the episodes a bit to give you time to finish reading the book. Now that I've finished reading it and I can look back, this is the lesson, one of the, one of the many lessons that I've learned from The Secret Life of Bees is that the story that picked up in Middle Build One isn't the one that I was expecting and I lost interest. If I'd been set up to expect this story, I, I wouldn't have been a problem. It's like if you want steak and someone gives you chicken, there's nothing wrong with chicken, you were expecting the steak. That's what you wanted. That's what you were in the mood for. That's what they built you up. And then suddenly it could be the best chicken in the world, but where's the steak that you promised me, right? 
<laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I, I know I've read stories like this before too. And one thing I think about um, worldview revelation, because I, I really agree with you. I think, and I should, I should own, I haven't read the entire story. I've read a good chunk of it, but, but not the whole story. But worldview revelation oftentimes puts the reader in a similar position of cognitive dissonance that the, the protagonist is in. We experience it too. And so narrative drive is really important and, um, and helping them keep going, even though they're kind of like, uh, this doesn't make sense. I don't understand what's happening. Why are we here? Those questions can come up. And there's a couple of setups that don't pay off. Uh, like, for example, so we've got a runaway and a fugitive, a 14-year-old white girl staying in a house with black women in the 60s in, the, in South Carolina. The, the police come and see that this is not the norm. They question her. She says, uh, oh, my aunt from Virginia is going to come and get me. And the police officer says, I'm going to come back and you better not be here. So the crime element, the action element is coming back, but the guy doesn't, but that doesn't pay off. Like, so I, I was waiting for him to come back and, you know, for shit to get real. And it never, it never happened. Okay, again, still a great book to read. But as I'm reading books, I'm picking up these, as I'm reading actively now as a writer, these are the types of things I'm thinking about and picking up on. And I'm trying to take note of my reaction to them as a reader so I can see what's really working for me and what makes me scratch my head. And there will always be variances in personal taste. Uh, so I allow for that as well. Like if I read a Western, I'm not a huge fan of Westerns and I, I don't know a lot about them. So I just kind of go with it just to see what, okay, what, what's the Western about? Let's just explore it. Um, okay, so why, saying all that, why on earth did I pick this scene? Well, one, it's because this to me is when the action picks back up or my interest in the story kicked back in. And it's the turning point of Middle Build One. Now, if you haven't read Action Story, The Primal Genre by Sean Coyne, I encourage you to get that. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's where Sean breaks the middle build, that big honk and chunk of story. He breaks it down into two parts for us, just to make it easier for us as writers to navigate, because it's really easy to get lost in the middle build. He's talking about it specifically with respect to action stories. However, in season seven of the Roundtable podcast, I looked at this breakdown in all of the stories that we did just to see, you know, how does it play in different genres? It was a really interesting experiment, and I encourage you to try that too with novels, short stories, movies, TV shows, whatever floats your boat. Um, here in The Secret Life of Bees, it's a really different type of scene than we're used to seeing, and we've already touched on this a bunch. You know, when we watch a film or television show, it's often an external genre because those are the, the forms that lend themselves to external genres. And it's right in front of our face. We can see the stuff happening. So it's easier to see. We tune into it faster and we're 
we start then to think about a turning point scene as that kind of externalized event. And, and it's playing as novelists, it's playing in our heads as a film, right? And what we're trying to do is translate the film, the picture we're seeing in our head into prose. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, if it works for you, keep doing it. However, when you have a scene from a global internal genre story where everything is happening in the character's head, like if you watch, and there is a film of this uh, book, when you watch this type of scene on film or in a television show, you've got to pay really close attention to the actor because the actor is trying to dramatize what's going on in the character's mind. It's harder for us if we consume stories primarily through film and television. As novelists, it's much harder to write these types of internal genre scenes because we've got no reference point, right? We're, we're, we are then trying to tap into the actor's process. <laughs> uh, whereas if we read a bunch of global internal genre novels, we can see what other novelists have done to tackle this type of thing. So this is a really quiet scene. It's a very short scene. Um, it's not, you know, loud and bangy and crashy. <laughs> uh, but you know what? It, it is really super effective. Um, I'm just looking at my notes here to see if I've forgotten anything on that note. When, at, at this point in the story, this is when the story drops into Middle Build 2, which is chaos. So the throughout Middle Build 1, the tension is increasing. And then you hit this turning point crisis climax resolution. Then you drop into Middle Build 2, which is chaos. And when the protagonist is in chaos, the entire world and everyone in it is in chaos too. Right after this scene, Zach is arrested. Right after the scene, all the big stuff starts to happen. Starts to happen, and everyone gets all confused and chaotic, and things run into chaos. One quick note: uh, I'm still studying this, obviously, but and I did a bunch on the roundtable. I'm still studying it in my own practice. I am noticing, and and in fairness, I'm doing contemporary novels, so I don't know how this pans out in older novels. So far, what I'm noticing is that the middle build one turning point crisis climax resolution happens fairly quickly. And sometimes it overlaps with the beginning of middle build two. So have a look at the, the masterworks that you're studying for your uh, work in progress and just see where the line is between middle build one and middle build two. Is there overlap? How quickly do things roll out or or are they dragged out? Now, we talk about characters being revealed um, rather than developed, and this is an excellent example of that. Here we have a 14-year-old who has been looking for her mother. She's been told that she has shot her mother. She believes that she is unlovable and unwanted and... And she lies all the time, and then she hates herself for lying, but her lies come 
out of a need to survive physically, emotionally, psychologically. That's where they're coming from because she feels that the person that she is isn't lovable, isn't wanted, isn't good enough. So she fabricates these personas so that hopefully one of the personas is lovable and wanted and so on. So this is everything that she's going after. Here in this scene, she finds someone who knows her mother. Now, May is a tortured soul. She's been through a lot. She feels life's pressures keenly. She can only handle so much. And when, when it becomes too much, she starts to sing, Oh, Susanna. And she goes out to the wailing wall and she writes out the, the, the thing that's bothering her, the trouble that she's feeling, sticks it in the wall. And that's how she works through it. So here you have Lily finally finding someone who knows about her mother. But the mention of her mother sends May into chaos, right? Because this is what's happening. May is the only one around her and immediately chaos pops up in May. Lily could say, well, to heck with you, May. I've been looking for someone for 10 years. I desperately need to know this information. Tell me now, tell me now. She could grab her, she could scream, she could anything. She lets May go because she puts May's needs ahead of her own. And that reveals who Lily is. She is a generous, kind soul who puts other people ahead of herself. She's not this unlovable, uncaring, unwanted person she thinks she is. And this is the whole point of the revelation, which is why I'm calling it a revelation. Um, although you could, you could argue with me on that. I'm perfectly happy to, if you see education in it or maturation, yep, I can't argue with either of those either. But the reason I'm calling it revelation is because when she understands that her mother didn't actually abandon her, that her mother did want her and she was loved, this is key information that allows Lily to be whole. Uh, let's see, what else? Um, I kind of touched on this already. It's a small scene, but it has a big impact. And uh, 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 Leslie, I don't know if you have ever studied music. I used to be a musician. And one of the common mistakes that we all made, me and, and the other students I studied with, we would always confuse tempo and dynamics. Intellectually, we knew the difference of them, but whenever we got to a score where we had to play forte, we'd rush, we'd start to go faster. So loud and fast was always the way we played, or if we had to play piano, it would be soft but slow. So we would lose the tempo if the dynamics were going up and down in a score. That's really natural, every one of us did it. I mean, I can still see my profs up there with their batons banging <laughs> banging the tempo on their music stand, right? Or starting to shout out the tempo when we'd get to a louder spot so that we didn't all start to go crazy. <laughs> As writers, we do exactly the same thing. We want to write scenes because I think, this is my theory, we're so used to seeing them in film and television where they are loud lots of times. These big turning point scenes are loud. They're big. They're cinematic because that's, the strength of the medium that we're looking at. But they can be soft, quiet scenes that still move the story 
forward quickly. And that as a musician is something that was really hard to learn, to play piano, but to keep the speed moving, to not slow the piece down. As a writer, it's exactly the same thing, to write a quiet internal genre story that still moves along. It's, it's, a, tricky, it's a tricky balance to strike. And I think The Secret Life of Bees is a good one to study if you want to learn the impact of that. So uh, again, because I'm a musician, I, I, the, the language I have to describe this is tempo and dynamics. Um, I think in terms of literature, it would be um, the, the narrative pace and the overtness of a scene. But if you're a musician, you understand what I'm talking about with tempo and dynamics. So <laughs> off you go. <laughs> All right, Leslie, what is your uh, key takeaway? Well, it's really simple, and it's similar to what I said last week, but pay attention to the details in your masterwork and in your work in progress because you want to – there's a lot of decisions to make, and we do get a lot of – you know, we get inspiration from the numinous, as Sean would say, right? We get the words come out, the setting, right? But we need to reconsider all of that and really pay attention to the way we're presenting it because that's what creates the experience, which is what gives the reader the catharsis that they want at the, you know, at the end of the story, um, and, and why they read and why they'll get hooked on your stories. And my key takeaway is to pay attention to the tempo and dynamics, because that's what this whole episode has been about. You can have quiet scenes that really move your story along. The, the scene doesn't have to be big and loud for it to throw your whole, your whole, uh, the whole world of the protagonist into chaos. And to be one of these spinal scenes, it doesn't have to be big and overt. It can be quiet. Um, so pay attention to the dynamics and the tempo. And that wraps it up for this week. Remember, if you want to become a better writer, you've got to write and you've got to read. Why not challenge yourself this week to take one of the ideas we talked about in the episode and use it in your work? To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. And if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to the channel. If you want to see how we put story theory into practice, subscribe to the UnPodcast at ValerieFrancis.ca slash Inner Circle or Writership.com. For show notes, blog posts, and information on the StoryGrid courses and guild, visit StoryGrid.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.